Podcast, a weekly podcast where we rotate between true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, yeah, a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you what is considered a weird distraction from everyday life. I'm one of your hosts, Alex, and as always, I'm joined by my lovely best friend slash co-host, Chrissy. And this week we are back talking true crime, but before we dive into this week's case, we got to go over a couple of things first. First and foremost, we have to discuss a little bit of housekeeping. So we had the lovely privilege to have not one, not two, but three guests on for our monthly Weird Spam series, which is over on our Patreon. So if you are on our Here for the Weird tier on Patreon, Patreon, I can't even talk, you will get access to this episode on December 15th. Not sure what the hell I'm talking about? Well... Weird Spam is a monthly bonus episode series where we basically read all of the weird junk mail we get because why not spam the scammers and have some laughs while doing it. So that is over on Patreon and you're going to want to check it out because it was a it was a fun one. Unfortunately, Christy couldn't join us, but I'm sure we'll have these lovely guests on later with Christy. Yes, I'm a bit of a workaholic as always, so I'm never available. So sorry, I'll try. (laughs) No worries. But you know what? I think that's a really good segue into our next part of the show, which is Christy. What is your need for a distraction this week? Is it work? No, work is fine. My distraction is funny. I just tell Alex, I was like, we're both just really cranky today. And I need like something to keep me distracted because I tried to watch a sad movie. And then all oh. I did was just cry the whole movie. And I was like, this is really depressing. So then I need something scary because now I feel <laughs> all of my feels. So now, you need your adrenaline kind of amped up again. Yeah, that's why I don't watch that movie. It's just like a blubbering idiot. What what movie were you watching? Oh, it was on Netflix. It's called I Still Believe. Oh, that yeah. sounds sad. Why would you yeah. do that to yourself on yeah, a like Sunday? I, I had seen the preview. It looked really good. And I was like, oh, I should watch that. But I know I'm going to cry. And then I watched it. And I was like, wow, I'm like Niagara Falls over here. Because that's what I do during sad movies. And then, yeah, now I need something scary. Because I need to get cheered up now. Well, you know what? <laughs> This is, I don't know if this episode is going to cheer you up or make you mad. It's going to wonder. Some yeah. mood changes. I don't really care. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I'm going to say my need for distraction is yes, I'm cranky. And I'm cranky because as we record this, we're recording this on December 5th. So about a week before the episode actually comes out. But I am already so drained of my social battery. And it's only the fifth of the month. And there's still however many more days left and how many more social gatherings I need to unfortunately make a presence at. So I just need a distraction from thinking about the holidays and all the social interactions that have to be dealt with because it's draining. It's so draining. This is why I hate the holidays because there's just all these interactions. You have to, I don't want to say put on a show, but you kind of do. And then on top of that, there's this weird lingering I don't know. Do you get the person something that's hosting a party? Do you give gifts to people even though you don't really want to? It's just I hate the whole... I hate, I hate, I hate the holidays. I don't know how else to say it. I just hate the holidays. It's funny you actually say that because I was thinking today when I got home, I've barely been home in this home that I like, bought. I've barely been here. All I do is socialize now and go to work. I haven't had any downtime. I'm always at people's fucking houses, which I, I, before I complained, I didn't have a life. And I have a life and I'm, I'm annoyed by it. 
Right? Man, we sound like such cranky old people. Welcome to our podcast. We want you to listen, but we're really cranky. I don't, I feel like we're not being very welcoming, but you know what? It is what it is. The holidays are stressful. And I think this is just holiday stress talking, maybe from both ends. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I feel like definitely the holidays. It's like I have to socialize and do stuff. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to right now. I'm spending all this money and that's already stressing me out. So I don't don't want to associate with people. Don't even get me started. But you know what? We do have to get started on one thing, and that is this week's case. So people tuning in obviously know the case by the title of this episode. Christy does not know the case because as every week, Christy has no idea what I'm going to be talking about unless she covers a case. Christy never knows. No, it's a surprise. Exactly. So this week we're back talking true crime, as mentioned, with a special Patreon pick from our patron, a.k.a my father, (laughs) John. So he picked this case, which has us actually staying in Ontario, Canada, to discuss a crime that rocked the Mississauga and surrounding areas during the 1970s and beyond. The case is that of Peter Demeter. And when I say this case is wild, I truly mean this case is wild. This case has the most written notes that I have ever done for the show thus far. Yeah, she's going to be a long one. I was prepared because I already knew it was going to be a long one. Yeah, so hopefully you got, I don't know, you got cleaning around the house to do. Maybe you're going on a road trip. Maybe you're going on extra long walk. I don't really know how long the episode will be once said and done and edited, but regardless, this is going to be a doozy. So there is a lot of information out there about Peter and his crimes. Spoiler alert, I know. Uh, but I try to kind of narrow down all of it for today's episode. If you do your own research or you hear another podcast version of this story, you might hear some little details that maybe I missed. Just know that I tried really hard to condense it, so I might have missed a couple of things here and there. But I try to get as much of what I thought was good information for the episode. Um, I'm also going to provide a trigger warning due to discussions of domestic abuse, murder, and violence, brief mentionings of suicide, and all things considerably awful. So as per usual, listener discretion is advised for a majority of the episode. You know what's bad when I have to say a majority of the episode. Anyways, let's talk about the history of Peter. So Peter was born in Aries on April 19th, 1933 in Budapest, Hungary. Now me being and semi into astrology, as you may have noticed after 88 episodes, I thought it would be kind of worthwhile to bring up traits of Aries since I don't think we've really had one discussed in any of our episodes previously. I can't remember any of our previous true crime people being in Aries. I think it's mostly just been Scorpios, Pisces, Sagittarius. I could be wrong. Yeah, no Aries. And some Virgos in there, but yeah. So according to the website coastrology.com, Aries traits include no filter gets angry easily, and then forgets why they were angry in the first place. And thinking everything is a game they can win, plus they're easily bored. So that's a lot of really not great things, but that this is literally what the website posted. So as I'm typing in this out, I was like, well, you know, it's not a great light to paint an Aries, but it it is what it is, I guess. Yeah, bright light for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I want folks, though, to remember these traits because after learning about Peter, I would say it's pretty applicable. Anyways, Peter was born to an upper middle class family. According to the Unjust Crimes podcast, whose video I watched about this case on YouTube, it's been documented that Peter and his brother attended a private school in Hungary. And they were wealthy enough to be chauffeured every day 
way in a Mercedes Benz. So when I say upper middle class, I mean, in my mind, that's upper class. But I mean, who knows? I don't know the economy in Hungary in the 1930s, 40s or 50s. Yeah, that sounds pretty classy to me, getting driven to school every day in a Mercedes and private school. Exactly. Cha-ching, cha-ching. The Demeter family seemed to be living a very comfortable life. However, things changed on January 2nd of 1945. An alleged stray shell from a Russian bombardment reportedly hit the apartment building that the Demeters were occupying. Even though the reason behind this was to rid the area of Nazis, it ended up having more of a traumatic unfoldment. So Peter and his family were actually trapped amongst rubble and debris for up to two days until rescuers came to their aid, which unfortunately Peter's father and brother did not survive the incident. Peter was only 12 years old when this happened. So this is pretty traumatic for anyone, let alone a 12 year old. Like I could not imagine that kind of trauma. No, yeah, trauma or loss at such a young age. already not a good beginning. And after this incident, it's been documented that Peter and his mother struggled financially to stay afloat. So I don't know if maybe his dad was kind of the one bringing in the money. I don't know if both parents had an income. Honestly, I don't even have Peter's parents' names to go off of, so it's kind of hard to say. But regardless, him and his mom were struggling financially, which I can imagine also is a little bit traumatic in the sense of you know, they live this kind of uh, plush lifestyle, to say the least. And then because of one thing that happened, one life altering event, it's just shambles. But despite that, Peter continued on with life. He reportedly did very well in school and supposedly shown interest in becoming an actor after he was done his public education. But he would actually be expelled from school in 1953 due to his anti-communist views, according to the Unjust Crimes podcast YouTube video. After this, Peter worked as a truck driver at approximately age 21 before being forced into the military service. So not not great. I don't know if he fully made it to actually serve or what exactly kind of took place in terms of nitty gritty details. But it's been documented that by 1954, Peter had actually fled to Vienna, Austria. While he was there, he was put into a refugee camp. Uh, He didn't, I don't know how long he stayed roughly, but he eventually did leave the camp and he got a job at a radio station called Radio Free Europe. He seems a little little bit coming with it, like went away, but now he's got a job potentially. I'm not going to lie. It's it's resiliency at this point. I mean, I don't understand the whole military situation. I am personally, if I was forced into military against my will, I wouldn't be super happy about it. Maybe I try to leave. I don't really know when it comes to that kind of stuff, what the circumstances were. But the fact that he was able to get a job out of a refugee camp, I think is pretty good from my understanding. What, what do you think? Yeah. That seems like a good, good way to start things, yep. Yeah, and his job at the radio station was actually, I mean, in my opinion, kind of cool because he reportedly would interview other refugees about their life and kind of what was happening at the time, basically trying to let the world know what it was like to be a refugee and what was going on behind closed doors, so to speak. So it was a really eye-opening experience, I would assume. And at this point, he actually met another Hungarian by the name of Chaba Salonge. The two would become BFFs, and let's just say Chaba... He's going to be one character out of many characters in the story. Spoiler alert, there are going to be a lot of names thrown around. 
my apologies, but Chaba is someone that we're going to want to remember, but we're going to move forward. Jumping to now 1956, Peter decided to move to Toronto, Ontario, Canada, like some of his relatives had already done, to try and chase the Canadian dream full of maple syrup and Timbits. Or Tim Biebs, because that is the thing now. Nothing special, I'm going to tell you that. I, I'm just going to put it out there. I had them this week, this past weekend, and yeah, I... Other than they're, I don't know, they look fancier than the regular Timbits. There's nothing special about them, point blank. No, I did not pay for them because I was not going to. <laughs> <laughs> I refuse to support this. I mean, make a whole new Timbit flavor, Justin Bieber, not just this knockoff bulge. Okay, we're not a Timbit review podcast. So Peter, with a whopping $8 in his pocket and probably some optimism and ambition, he came to Canada. However, he only lasted about four months before going back to Vienna, probably feeling somewhat defeated. But apparently he went back to take care of his mother who was not doing so well. This wouldn't be the end of Peter in Canada. He he would come back. And um, he actually came back in 1957. He didn't want to throw away the maple-loving dream of being a Canadian, so he eventually came back. The second time around that Peter came back, he reportedly took any job that would come his way and began saving any loony, toony, nickel, and dime that he could. And I mean, at that point, they had pennies still, so he was probably saving his pennies too. Those are hot commodities nowadays. Can't get them or use them. Oh, RIP, Canadian penny. Lost but never forgotten. <laughs> Anyways, so after some time, Peter was able to get his real estate license, in which, according to the Unjust Crimes podcast YouTube video, he began selling other Hungarian immigrants' homes in the greater Toronto area, aka the GTA. Anyways, Peter was killing it in the real estate game, and by 1962, he had registered a business called Eden Gardens Limited, which would become an apartment building located in Toronto's West End. So for geo Geographical reference, and according to a quick Google search along with Wiki Travel, the west end of Toronto is bounded roughly by Bathurst Street and Vaughan Road to the east, St. Clair Avenue to the north, the Humber River to the west, and Lake Ontario to the south. Peter had reportedly put down $20,000 for this building, which is quite a bit for the time. And, you know, Peter having this amount of money reportedly came off kind of odd because even though he was allegedly doing well financially, the money kind of came seemingly out of nowhere. You know, it's one of those situations where it's like, oh, I just woke up one day and I had $20,000 extra in my bank account. What shall I do with this? Hmm. You know, can't ever relate to that scenario, but that's kind of... but okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, I've never had $20,000 in my name before, so... Other than what I owe, what I used to owe to the National Student Loan Service Center, which, fuck. Anyways. One day you'll get that down. One day. You could support us over at Patreon, Doc. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, no. No. <laughs> That's not the purpose of Patreon. But regardless. Peter, the, having this money, it just, it seemed odd at the time. And it's been rumored that Peter may have actually participated in a money scam to get this money. One where investors may have been told that the money they were investing in would go to Hungary with a big chunk being returned to them. However, it never would return to them. Da 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 da. 
So regardless, I'm not a detective, but I'd say right off the hop, this situation smells fishy. But once again, it was 1962 and people didn't really know what we know now in terms of money scams. I feel like scammers were really thriving back then because, you know, people didn't have as many warnings and as well, they had no Internet access, right, to kind of Google. Is this a scam or anything like that yeah they call you and be like this is canadian water control you're under arrest blah 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 and you're like oh my god i believe it yeah exactly now in 2021 it's if the rcmp of british columbia is calling because they have a warrant out for your arrest and you have to give them your social insurance number you tell them kindly to fuck right off and to leave you alone and to not interrupt you eating your timbits so it is what it is it's a different it was a different time needless to say so according to the unjust crimes podcast youtube video peter was investigating for this potential Hungarian money scam, however, was never reportedly convicted. I don't even think he went to trial. I don't think any charges were actually pressed. It just seems police maybe had their eye on him, but nothing ever happened. So despite what may have seemed like a close call with the law, 32-year-old Peter was now rolling in the dough as a real estate agent and a land developer. He decided to treat himself and took a trip back to Vienna in 1965. During this trip, he met 20-year-old model Marina Hunt. Now, Peter was infatuated by Marina. I'm talking at the same energy level as Tom Cruise jumping on Oprah's couch about Katie Holmes kind of stuff. He was obsessed. I say this because supposedly Peter would propose to Marina the second time that he saw her. The second time. The second time. Yeah. Okay. Love at first sight. Great. But you don't do that. Yeah, I've been dating the same man for almost eight years now. With no ring. And Marina gets a ring on the second meeting. I'm not saying I'm mad. I'm just saying he was, he was, I don't even know. I, I, I have thoughts, comments, and concerns, but you know what? We're just gonna, we're just gonna keep moving forward. So Marina, though, wasn't necessarily getting the whole jumping on the couch Tom Cruise vibe towards Peter. Based on what I gathered, Marina was enjoying being single. She didn't want to be tied down to anyone or have to leave Vienna because, you know, Peter's living in Canada. If she was going to marry him, she would have to immigrate to Canada and she didn't want to do that. So that's totally fair. Marina reportedly turned down Peter and to say that Peter didn't take this well would be an understatement. Peter allegedly had a nervous breakdown after being told no by Marina and would be hospitalized for up to three days. So I don't know if he tried to hurt himself. I don't know if he... I I don't know the full details. All that I gathered was that he had a, quote, nervous breakdown and then went to hospital for three days, which I feel as though back then you could go to the hospital and say, I'm having a nervous breakdown and be admitted whereas now I mean at least in Canada that's not necessarily the case right so I don't I don't really know what his nervous breakdown really looked like. No, no, the depressing thing is now you can you go to the hospital and you potentially are having a nervous breakdown or need to be formed and you don't have a bed to go to. Yep. Because so. it's full. Yeah. After this kind of nervous breakdown, Peter took his rejected ass back to Toronto where he got right back to writing Marina a love letter. <laughs> Yeah. Homeboy was not taking no for an answer. And this is problematic because if someone says no, you respect their answer. You say, okay, NP, no prob. I get it. It's fine. And then you move on. But Peter, on the other hand, is the opposite of that. And he said, okay, you know what? You said no. Mm, I'm going to try harder for you to say yes. Got some control issues, it seems like. 
No, we'll get to it. So Peter supposedly wrote Marina a love letter, bearing his heart and soul to her. Now, from what I gathered in my research, Marina did write back to Peter, even though she was in a relationship with somebody else she kind of kept him at arm's length you know she would be like oh yeah I'm seeing this person and I'm traveling here and I'm doing this and this that and the other and although she was telling him she was with other people it's kind of confusing and I don't want to paint her in a bad light because I don't really know what the circumstance was but it just kind of seemed as if in everything I looked at, she kind of, she was keeping him close, but not close enough. Do you know what I mean? And I don't know maybe if that was because she was just trying to be friendly. Maybe she did like him, but she just wasn't get married to him. Whatever the reason being, she's allowed to do you know, whatever she wants in the sense of, yeah, I'll still write back to you and say like, yeah, I'm in a relationship. Hope you're doing well. Bye. But the fact that what I also gathered was that if she didn't write him back fast enough, he would send another letter. It's kind of not great vibes that I got off from reading that information. No, she's clearly saying, hi, friend or whatever. Like, great to talk to you. And he's like, I need your attention. I need your attention now. I need you. Yeah. And I mean, People can kind of think of this situation how they want. I am in the school of thought that I think maybe she was trying to keep things platonic and maybe keep, you know, in contact with him. Because who knows? Like, she's only 20. He's 32. She's living her life. He wants to settle down, right? They're at two different points of their lives. So anyways, Peter would send Marina loads of love letters, promising her financial security if they got married, happiness, and all things that may try to convince her to come to live with him and to be with him. So jumping to 1966, Peter would return back to Vienna, which supposedly took place around the anniversary of when the two first met. Now, there seems to kind of be some conflicting reports of whether the two got together and spent time to celebrate this quote-unquote anniversary while Peter was in Vienna. However, the consensus is that Peter found out that Marina was actually seeing someone, maybe somebody different, or I don't know if they he physically saw the marina with somebody i'm not really sure but this sent peter off the deep end so he supposedly showed up to marina's house and physically assaulted her i don't know if he was ever arrested or convicted for this unfortunately or if she pressed charges or the fine details which i feel like regardless assault is assault doesn't really matter what the fine details were but he he snapped and super inappropriate he just break in and assault somebody the fuck Needless to say, Peter and Marina were done, but don't forget about Marina because, like Chaba, there is a second and very important appearance for Marina later on. But weeks would go by after this breakdown of Peter and Marina, and Peter was still kind of kicking it in Vienna. I don't know if he was just like on an extended vacation, if he went back to Canada, came back to Vienna. I don't I don't really know. But Peter would run into our next main character of this story after things with him and Marina kind of ended, and that person is Christine Ferrari. So I'm going to give a little bit more information about Christine that I was able to find during my research. So Christine was born in Austria, as Assumingly on November 5th, 1940. I say assumingly as I'm not certain this is her exact birthday, but I'll explain later why I think it may be. At age 16, Christine had dropped out of school to marry her first husband, Herbert Handling, and shortly before her 17th birthday, the two had their first and only son, Martin. Now, some may find satisfaction with the roles of spouse and parent. However, Christine reportedly wanted more out of life than just that. She reportedly wanted the Fergie lifestyle of being glamorous and maybe succumbed to second thoughts about the situation she was currently in. 
Hamilton. With dreams to become a model, in 1963, she had officially divorced from Herbert, who was granted custody of her son. It seemed as though Christine was able to begin chasing her dreams, which actually kind of really worked out for her because she was able to find gigs in magazines, shows, and overall becoming kind of more involved with the Austrian fashion world. Fast forward back to 1966, Christine reportedly had a small part in a movie and was working on a set when she was introduced to Peter Demeter. It's been alleged that Christine was smitten by the tall, wealthy, and confident Peter. The two reportedly would rendezvous after their first meeting, and within the first weeks of this sparked connection, they went to the Canary Islands. So they're like, hmm, really digging you? Really digging you? Let's go to the Canary Islands. Once again, a situation that I can't relate to, but you know what? This is, this is, I guess, what rich people do. This is how rich people date, I guess. Yeah, they're having fun. And she's like, okay, let's go. Yeah, I mean, why not? Uh, If this doesn't sound like some serious thing, then the next part of the story will. So Christine moved from Austria to Canada with Peter not long after their trip to the Canary Islands. Christine moved with a promise of financial security and basically a new life of love and happiness. And I'm going to assume kind of any other lovey-dovey promises that people make during the honeymoon phase. Because, you know, a lot of promises get made during that phase. And unfortunately, don't come through. Exactly. So Christine moves to Toronto and allegedly tried to upstart her modeling career. However, Peter reportedly became more possessive over Christine's actions. So what, she can't have a job? Yeah, it got to a point where Peter would borderline interrogate Christine, apparently, asking who she spoke to, where she was, and probably just other invasive questions. It just seemed as if he didn't like the fact that she was out and about. From what I gathered in watching the Unjust Crimes podcast YouTube video, it has been rumored that Christine may have had an affair. However, we can't confirm this as fact. And regardless, I mean, I I don't know if the interrogation came before the alleged affair, after. It's, it's still not good. Don't possess your partner. Like, that's just, I think, healthy relationships 101. If the affair did happen, I think we can imagine how Peter would have reacted given how he responded to rejection previously. Another layer to the story is that allegedly Christine at one point went to a friend's home with a bloody lip after a suspected incident with Peter. Christine reportedly told her friend that she wanted things to end with Peter due to him beating her. Her friend had allegedly offered Christine a ticket back to Vienna, but Christine declined this offer. Christine would return to Peter after this incident in which the two reconciled. Now, before anyone begins casting judgment or getting their Karen tones about, why did she go back with him? I'm just going to pull up some facts because I think this is one of those situations where unless we are in it, we don't know what we would do. So according to the Women Against Abuse website, there are plenty of reasons why people may not leave an abusive relationship. For example, leaving could be even more dangerous, which I'm going to directly quote the website I just mentioned, which once again is Women Against Abuse. So quote, many people experiencing intimate partner violence realistically feel Fear that their abusive partner's actions will become more violent and even lethal if they attempt to leave. The abuser may have threatened to kill them or hurt their child, family member, or pet if they leave, end quote. So I think also just from the outside looking in, Peter has a lot of money. She's in a new country. Even though she was given a one-way ticket out, Peter also knows Vienna. So it's not as if he is I think hypothetically speaking if Peter really wanted to find her he could I mean he had the means 
he knew wherever she went, he would have some idea of how to get in touch with her. I mean, yeah, it's the 1960s. It's not as connected technology wise as it is now in terms of, you know, snap maps or anything like that. But it's it's still it. I can imagine it being a very scary situation. And although we don't have the specific details as to Christine's exact reasoning, we have to remind ourselves that until we are faced with that situation, which hopefully is never the case for anyone listening or in between Christy and I, we don't know how we will respond or react to it. So please, no judgments today for Christine. Thank you. As mentioned, Peter and Christine reconciled and the two would go on and get married on November 14th in 1967, which reportedly was nine days after her 27th birthday. Remember earlier when I assumed her birthday was November 5th? Well, that's because I did the math and ended up with that conclusion. Once again, I'm not a mathematician, nor 100% sure that this information that I read online is accurate, so please take my investigation methods with a grain of salt. Anyways, jumping to 1970, the Demeters gave birth to their only child, a baby girl named Andrea. Peter reportedly was so over the moon excited to become a dad and to show his happiness, he reportedly gifted Christine with a white Mercedes-Benz convertible. My sister-in-law recently just gave birth to her and my brother-in-law's first child. And so I told her about this situation. I said, yeah, this guy that I'm writing an episode about, he gifted his wife a Mercedes-Benz for basically pushing out their child. And and she's like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to get that. Just totally fair, because that's a really elaborate push gift. I feel like a lot of people are not going to be getting those gifts. If this didn't scream that the Demeters were living good, the couple also had a maid, a gardener, and a dog, a spaniel named Beezlebub. Which I don't, I don't know what Beezlebub is from. I don't know the name origins. I, I don't know. So please don't at me. I, I did not get any details about Beezlebub. So my apologies. When you say Beezlebub, all I thought about was Bulbasaur for some reason. What is that? It's a Pokemon. Oh, which, which, what does it look like? Bulbasaur, I think, is a little turtle that shoots water or something. Oh, I'm going to have to Google that one after. It's been so long since I've got fully reintroduced to Pokemon. Yeah, don't judge me. I don't fucking play Pokemon Go. I'm just remember that from my childhood, okay? <laughs> no judgment here. So the family lived on two acres of land on the dead end street of Dundas Crescent in Mississauga, Ontario. For geographical reference, aka for non-Ontario listeners tuning in, Mississauga is a city north of Toronto and some people, aka myself, consider it part of the GTA, which once again, the greater Toronto area. The Demeter house also boasted a double car garage, a pool, and reportedly beautiful gardens, which I mean they had a paid gardener, so I would assume that the gardens were probably pristine. In building his developer's portfolio, Peter and Christine reportedly moved around a lot, but the house at 1437 Dundas Crez had reportedly seemed to be home for them. The family was living kind of a life that some of us would probably dream for. However, as I'm sure some have already started speculating wildly, things weren't amazing behind closed doors. Peter's happiness of becoming a dad was short-lived as his insecurities reportedly manifested again from before. The couple were fighting allegedly quite a bit, and And Peter would accuse his own friends of sleeping with Christine after being convinced that Andrea did not look 
like him enough. He even went as far as accusing his friend, Chaba, of being one of the potential fathers of Andrea, which obviously, as far as my understanding, this is not accurate. It's just Peter's mind kind of playing tricks on him and thinking like, oh, she doesn't look like me enough because he's so insecure about his relationships, it seems. Yeah, does he really like expect her to be having an affair with anybody and everybody and thinking the kid is not his? I know. Like he's, he's living in his own world. Yeah, very, very insecure. And this obviously rocked the boat for Peter and Christine. And instead of trying to find calmer waters for the two, he decided that it was time to start poking holes in his own boat. So Peter allegedly reached back out to Marina, aka the one who he assaulted and had a nervous breakdown after she rejected him. In doing this, Peter had reportedly sent Marina 25 roses for her 25th birthday, in which the two rekindled their pen pal relationship shortly after. Peter would send Marina gifts while she reportedly would tell him all about her life of jet-setting, dating, and what have you. By 1973, Marina had informed Peter that she herself was getting hitched, which can we guess how Peter reacted to this? Christy, what are your guesses? How do you think Peter would react to Marina telling him that she's getting married? I'm going to assume very hostile, not happy, potentially re-assaulting. I don't know. Sounds like he's off his hinges. If you guess that he sent her a plane ticket so the two could meet up in Quebec come early June of 1973, you'd be correct. Which, Christy, you're I not. completely <laughs> in the opposite direction. I was like, uh, you get very angry. So yeah. Yeah, so the two reportedly met up and supposedly they agreed that they wanted to be with one another. Marina, I guess, was, you know, older now. She realized she wanted to be with Peter. Peter was still in love with her. So it was just timing earlier. Blah, 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 blah. However, there were some obvious obstacles in the way for this to happen. The biggest one being that Peter was already married and had a toddler at home with his said wife. Regardless, Marina and Peter, uh, I'm sure, agreed that they would try and make things work. They wanted to be together so bad that they were going to make things work. So much so that Marina flew back on June 12th with a return ticket to Canada, aka to come back to Peter for July 26. Now, some may think, Okay, so maybe Peter just divorced Christine, and that's that on that. But if that was the case, we wouldn't be discussing him. And unfortunately, things were a lot more sinister than just an easy-peasy divorce. Oh, great. So on July 18, 1973, Peter was back at home in Mississauga, and the family were joined by out-of-town guests, Dr. Sybil Brewer, a friend of Peter's from Connecticut, along with her two German nieces, Katya and Celia. Vivekka Essel whom was the daughter of one of Peter's old friends, was also visiting at this time too. And I'm going to refer to her as Viv, just so I don't get I'm getting tongue-tied later on trying to say her name, because to be honest, I've probably already butchered it, so my deepest apologies. It also sounds as if there was another Canadian friend of Katya and Celia's at the Demeter's house as well. So in total, there were five guests, Sybil, Katya, Celia, Viv, and the unnamed Canadian girl. Peter reportedly planned on taking the younger girls shopping in Toronto, which worked out also in his favor as he needed to check in on some of his projects in the area. The group reportedly had to take Christine's Mercedes that day as Peter's Cadillac was stuck in one of the ports of the garage due to a broken door. Christine's car was reportedly squished with the six people. Peter also decided that he wanted to squeeze in the family dog, Beezlebub, as well, because why not make it just a more tight seating arrangement 
to work with Peter. We love a good convoy, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So Christine had decided to hang back and relax by the pool, allowing for Peter to take the girls out to the city. Sybil, Katya, and Celia and the unnamed Canadian girl were dropped off at the mall, while Peter took then 16-year-old Viv with him to check on a work project. It's been reported that Viv wanted to hang back with Christine at the house to relax, but Peter, who was an uncle figure to Viv, supposedly insisted that she come with. Peter and Viv were driving around Toronto as Peter randomly started rambling on about he and Christine's troubled marriage, along with disclosing some fears around being with Marina. So he basically flat out was just billing his baggage to this poor 16 year old who's probably just sitting in the passenger seat like yeah i should have gone to the mall i would have preferred to get some frozen yogurt other than listening to this middle-aged man tell me about his marriage problems yeah that was me i'd be like what the fuck am i doing here and please take me somewhere else it's kind of one of those like freeze frame you're probably wondering how i got stuck in this situation let me tell you. <laughs> but luckily for Viv, this awkward one-on-one drive along with Peter was ended when he went back to the mall to get the others. Before heading home, the group stopped in at one of Peter's job sites located in Riverdale, which is near the east end of Toronto. It's been documented that supposedly Peter appeared frantic in nature trying to locate one of his contractors during this visit, who Peter had tried calling with no luck in connecting. Christine, once again, back at the house, reportedly was interacting with neighbors along with her daughter's babysitter and the babysitter's two sisters who were also at the Demeter's house during the time that Peter and the other girls were out. As the guests left, Christine was reportedly seen by them to be sunbathing on the pool's diving board. Peter had come back to the home with the rest of the group at around 4pm in which the girls kind of went straight back to the pool. It was a hot day so they're like fuck this, we're going swimming. Peter still had one more meeting this day and that meeting supposedly took place at the house. This meeting was to to supposedly discuss selling the home. One of the people that were attending the meeting was Rick Vera, who reportedly arrived early to the Demeter's house and proceeded to wait in his car in the driveway for his colleague, Carolyn, to show up. Minutes had passed when Rick noticed a beige Volkswagen Beetle pull into the Demeter's driveway. But it wasn't Carolyn. The car, which supposedly had three men inside, unknown men, unidentified men for that matter, eventually would pull out of the driveway, which Rick assumed this probably happened quite a bit considering the Demeters lived on a dead-end street. So nothing super suspicious at this point in time. Seems kind of weird, but nothing in the moment that would cause Rick to be like, "Mm, I'm getting a weird vibe off of this. Yeah, they turned around. Like, waited and then turned around versus them coming in and then all of them jumping out of the car. And you're like, nope, something's about to go down. That's suspicious. Exactly, exactly. So the meeting eventually happens at the home where it has been reported that the purpose was, as mentioned, to discuss how Peter wanted to sell the home in Mississauga and move to Toronto to basically buy a condo, which he had plans to convert this condo. Because Peter was a Canadian resident, he would not have to pay the capital gains tax, which according to the Unjust Crimes podcast this was a method that Peter used quite often. Kind of a scam, but I don't really know the whole real estate laws when it comes to Canadian residents versus Canadian citizens and all that fun stuff. But needless to say, Peter knew his way around real estate law and knew how to kind of work his way around real estate law if that makes sense. Annoyed. Yes. So Christine, on the other hand, was not 
super impressed with having to move again. As mentioned earlier on in the introduction of Peter, they had moved around quite a bit, and the home that they were currently in in Mississauga really felt like home to her. You know, they had a beautiful property. They had enough space for the three of them. Why move again? They also had enough money as is. They didn't really need to make this money to get out of any debts or anything that she was aware of. So, you know, this obviously was a meeting that quickly turned tense, if you catch my drift. We have Peter that wants to sell the home in Mississauga, uproot back south to Toronto. And then you have Christine who's like, no, I want to stay here. This is ridiculous, right? So as you can imagine, it, things got kind of tense. Yeah, and you can't expect someone to discuss moving when they don't want to move in the first place. You didn't tell them. Yeah, so regardless, Carolyn left her real estate information with Peter, who I'm sure wasn't thrilled that Christine was attesting his plans. Later on, tensions reportedly flared while the Demeters sat down with their guests for dinner. Basically, one of the German girls didn't find an item that they were hoping to buy at the mall earlier that day. So when discussing this at the table, Sybil, the the one of the German girls' aunts and Peter's friend, had suggested that she could take them back to Yorkdale Mall after dinner. Peter reportedly insisted that he take the girl shopping again. Sybil could come, but he was going to also tag along and take all the, the group of girls again back down to the mall. The group of girls, minus Christine, but obviously, as mentioned, including Peter, decided to go to the Yorkdale Mall for the second shopping trip of the day at approximately 7.45 p.m. And for those wondering, yes, they crammed back into the Mercedes, and yes, Beezlebub the dog did go with them again. The group arrived at Yorkdale Mall at approximately 8.15 p.m., in which Peter told the group to set their watches for 9.15 p.m. to meet back up. However, when they walked up to the mall front doors, they probably noticed that there was a sign that said, no dogs allowed. So, Peter allegedly told Viv to go ahead and look around at the jewelry store inside while he take Beezlebub back to the car. Things get weird because Peter reportedly takes a long time doing this. I don't know how much time, but he takes a long time taking Beezlebub back to the car. We don't know if he went for a walk. We don't know really what happens in this moment. But jumping to 8.35 p.m., Viv reportedly saw Peter in the jewelry store and he appeared to be talking on the phone with someone, which kind of seems weird. However, it was supposedly Christine, which is verified because Viv later confirmed that she actually spoke to Christine on the phone and that's how we can say yes it was christine for sure peter was asking christine to check on something or get something from the garage which she said she was going to do and the two ended the call the group then arrived back at the home from the second shopping trip at around 9 45 p.m to a dark almost lifeless house peter reportedly opened up the garage door and proceeded towards it before then slamming on his brakes in front of the group was a motionless body lying in the garage surrounded with blood the fuck yeah shit's gonna get really i don't even know how to describe it but really dark and not great starting here so this is where things kind of take a downhill spiral so to speak the body in the garage was that of christine which peter reportedly stated out loud when coming to this realization oh my god oh my god Andrea was found inside the home watching cartoons by herself, unharmed and unaware of what was going on around her. Police were reportedly called at 9.51 p.m., in which Peter had supposedly told them at first that he was calling about a reported accident in his garage and that his wife was bleeding. However, after calming down a bit, Peter noted that he believed Christine may have died by suicide. I don't want to spoil things, but I feel like I have an idea and I'm not going to say it, though. Do you want to say it just so you can say it? Because I like to predict things. <laughs> yes. Do you, would you like to give us your prediction before I continue on? 
Yes, I feel like there was that window where he was missing. And so I feel like he did something. So you think he did it? I'm just going to guess that, yes. Okay, keep that in your back pocket for later. I'm not going to confirm or deny, but keep that in your back pocket, okay? All right. When police arrived, it was quickly determined that Christine's death wasn't a suicide. This idea comes from a couple of different observations, including the observed deep wounds discovered on the back of Christine's head, indicating and appearing as though she suffered from a severe brain injury. On top of that, Christine's blood was bright red, which indicated that she had died super recently, as recent as a few minutes before Peter and the guests came home. Speaking of blood, there was a lot reportedly splattered amongst the scene in the garage, which some police noted was odd, because if it was a suicide, it's kind of hard to say and I don't want to get into like graphic details but from what I understand they didn't think that with the amount of blood at Christine's scene or at the scene of Christine I guess that the same amount of blood that you would typically see at a supposed suicide scene does that make sense it's definitely meant to look like that as if I was running around or being chased maybe that's why the mental blood is where it should be versus like i'm trying to kill myself again don't know what method that she had possibly yeah. done if that's what they would happen like it'd be in one spot and not that amount yes exactly christine was also found face down with her hands tucked under her and was found covered with multiple bruises there was also blood splatter on peter's cadillac that appeared to demonstrate that there must have been something that hit christine from a certain height repeatedly so it also didn't help that peter was basically a walking red flag towards police right off the hop as soon as they got there he just was bad news bears all over like bad news bears behavior all over let's just put it that way apparently peter would become irritated after being told that christine was dead peter reportedly made a comment that he believed christine must have fallen while reaching for something in the rafters of the garage he then proceeded to allegedly ask officers if they could hold off on doing any further investigating due to all the quote excitement that was going on he would basically become more irritable the more police officers arrived on scene supposedly pulling a Karen and asking to speak to a manager, aka the senior officer. It's my understanding that Peter felt as though police were kind of standing around and not doing anything, but then he also asked them to hold off on doing anything. So it's very mixed vibes, which I feel as though that gives off a red flag in and of itself. And it's not great behavior to have. What do you think, Christy? No, and it's weird that she just died. And you're like, okay, let's let's stop. This is too much right now. Like, no, you want to figure out what happened because was possibly murdered potentially exactly why would you not be more concerned and wanting to figure out what happened right so when peter asked to speak to the head honcho at the scene officer murray spoke up and informed peter that they were the senior officer and that they were doing something they were opening an investigation they weren't just standing around like peter was claiming that they were doing peter responded by asking officer murray to basically remove christine's body from the garage as if it was inconveniencing him his behavior and his request become a huge red flag for officials who I'm going to assume had a gut feeling that something was amok with Christine's death. Peter would also go on and appear on edge when questioned. Basically any question that police had for Peter it was almost as if he felt he was being attacked which isn't a good look because in my mind it's like if you're becoming irritated and unapproachable I mean yes this is a very traumatic situation we don't know you know if he just was experiencing trauma or um, grief really, really quickly. And just that's how he's responding. That's, and that's how he responds to trauma and grief. 
However, it just seems really odd, right? So once the crime scene investigator had arrived on scene and examined Christine, he had determined that Christine's death was not due to a suicide or accident, but rather she had suffered an attack to the back of the head with a heavy object, aka being that of a homicide. Now, this didn't line up with Peter's alleged theories. He was going around to basically anyone who I guess would listen about what he thought happened to Christine. And that also is kind of a red flag out of itself because it was almost as if he was trying to force his own theories down investigators' throats. And it's like, dude, this is their job. You need to let them do their job. And not only that, but you telling them what you think happened doesn't necessarily mean that's what happened, right? No, he's just throwing red flags all around everywhere, being very suspicious. And... Why are you trying to force something on them or force a narrative, force her body out, do all this other extra crap when they just want to do their job? Exactly. So as mentioned, it was speculated that Christine's death was a homicide based off of what the crime scene investigator had kind of observed. However, no murder weapon could be found in the garage, which this instigated a search warrant for the rest of the property. At first, police thought that perhaps Christine had interrupted an intruder, but none of the windows or doors had been messed with with and nothing was reportedly missing. On top of that, Andrea was found safe inside the home. So to me, when I kind of gathered all that information, it's like, okay, well, if it was an intruder, I think there'd be more telltale signs of an intruder and there wasn't right? So you kind of have to knock that one off the list. With that ruled out, it seems as though police may have known that there was something far more sinister and personal at play. And although Peter wasn't initially arrested the day Christine was discovered deceased, he was looking more like a prime suspect every time he opened his mouth. Well, yeah, everything he says is red flags. He is basically the human version of a red flag. A thousand percent. Agreed. So before moving forward to a big break from police and still presumably taking place the same evening that Christine's body was found, based on what I researched, Peter supposedly told police that he and Christine's marriage wasn't good, which was also backed up by Peter's cousin, Dr. Stephen Demeter, and Stephen's wife. Peter also made a comment that Christine had a $1.1 million life insurance policy. So all of this, plus his general behavior towards and around police, backs up my earlier notion that he was... I don't even know what he was doing. It's it's almost as if he was trying to control the situation so much so that in reality, on the outside looking in, he was basically creating more chaos for himself. It's one of those situations where his foot was in his mouth, but he just kept talking, <laughs> right? Like he just wouldn't shut the fuck up. It's like, dude, stop talking. But he just kept talking. That's good. He's painting a great picture for himself. Actually, yeah, very true. I mean, in the long scheme of things, it's good that he kept talking. But uh, for those wondering about Andrea, she would be taken to Peter's cousin Stephen's home to live with his family, which included his wife and their son, Stuart, who I believe was a little bit older than Andrea. So Andrea is, as far as my understanding, in good hands with family. Peter, I guess now, is having to deal with you know, the aftermath of Christine dying. So in terms of the investigation, and as previously mentioned, there was a big break for police, which happened a few days after Christine was found dead. An ex-girlfriend of Peter's friend, Chaba, called police to inform them of an odd conversation that she had previously had when she was dating Chaba. This ex, named Rita, supposedly told police that Chaba told her that he could make a lot of money by killing Christine. Extremely intrigued, police went down to see 
see Chaba two days after receiving this call. After some questioning, Chaba reportedly sung like a canary. Chaba told police that a year after their marriage, Peter was creating schemes to get rid of Christine, basically trying to come up with ways to kill her in such a way that it would look like an accident. Two days prior to her death, Chaba told police that Peter hired a hit person to meet and kill Christine at a location that he had told Christine to be at. However, when Christine showed up at this location, she was with Chaba's current partner, being the Demeter's former maid. So what are your thoughts, Christy, on this new information? I'm, I'm kind of confused on the Hitman storyline and now that Chaba's coming back into the works, but it's interesting that he had a plan all along to potentially kill her for some reason. Yeah, it's not looking good for Peter, but in my mind also, it's not looking good for Chaba because Chaba knew about all these schemes that Peter was coming up with. And although he claims he didn't participate in them, he kind of just brushed off Peter's crazy schemes. He also never told Christine. He had, like he never warned her. He never gave her a heads up. He never said anything to her. Yeah, okay. Uh, by the way, your husband, uh, on a regular basis, plans to kill you in different ways and I thought you should know. End of story. Yeah, it's it's insane. So Chaba reportedly take two lie detector tests, which he passed. And after this, he agreed to become a police informant, being wired at every opportunity that he would be able to talk to to Peter about the case. So meanwhile, the pathologist had indicated that approximately 24 hours after this horrible scene played out that Christine's death was officially ruled as a homicide. A reward was being put out by police initially for anyone who had any information to come forward regarding who may have murdered Christine. So I don't remember how much money they put up, but Peter supposedly posted up $10,000 towards this effort, which is kind of fucked up because apparently Peter had, according to Chaba, had paid $10,000 for this first hit person to kill Christine two days before Christine actually died. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So Very... he paid someone 10 grand and then he also put a 10 grand reward type thing out? Yes. So because I guess the hit didn't work out because Christine saved was that money, <laughs> I guess, but like, it's so fucked up. Isn't like, it's just, it's insane. Anyways, Peter puts up this money, but he's busy at this point. You know, he's booked and he's busy. Uh, supposedly he went down to a big Toronto law firm to retain counsel, which is weird because he hasn't been charged with anything. So why is he getting a lawyer if he hasn't been charged with anything? That is a red flag. Suspicious. It's the controlling the whole situation and storyline for me with this one. He is trying so hard to control everything that's happening and it's just making him look more and more like an asshole. Period. End of discussion. But... We have to carry on instead of talking shit about Peter. So on July 22nd, Christine's funeral was held, which Chaba attended being wired up. Chaba supposedly spoke to Peter about the heat police were giving off during the investigation, which he asked Peter for advice. You know, I can imagine he said, you know, police keep talking to me. They keep asking me about you and Christine. Like, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? And Peter allegedly told Chaba to not speak to the police and to avoid taking lie detector tests, which... <laughs> Okay, Peter, we're a little bit late on that one, but whatever. And Peter reportedly also hinted that there was a middleman involved with the situation. So it's not a confession, but it's also not looking great for Peter. He didn't confess he did it, but he definitely confessed he had a part in it. Suspicious. Yeah, it's also like dropping hints of 
oh, I kind of know what happens, but acting as if he doesn't out loud, but he's still acknowledging that he may know something. So at this point as well, Peter had his phone tapped by police, which back then, phone tapping laws in Canada were supposedly relaxed. So no warrant was reportedly needed to have this done. And I think this is actually probably for the best that this was done because Peter allegedly talked non-stop about the police investigation. However, from my understanding, it was never recorded that he outwardly admitted to anything, but he just wanted to shut the fuck up about it. He just he just kept talking about it. Oh yeah, from the beginning he was talking so much and we're like, he's a walking red flag because like, he won't yeah. shut up and I just keeps not shutting up and he just keeps talking about it. Yeah, like dude, take a hint. Take your foot out of your mouth and stop being an asshole. Period. Just stop. It's not that hard. But for him, it's hard. <laughs> uh, he wasn't the only one talking, though. So his neighbors reportedly told police that Christine knew Peter was having an affair with Marina and that she was looking into what her rights were if they proceed with a divorce. So she, I don't know if she stumbled upon the love letters. I'm going to say I think she did. And she kind of put two and two together, especially because who knows what letters from Marina she read. But he all of a sudden goes to Quebec and then comes back and is all like, oh, yeah, we're going to sell this house, this, that, and the other. I mean, I don't think Christine was living in the dark in the sense of she knew that Peter was connecting with Marina. And so she was just trying to protect herself by reaching out to a lawyer to see how she could, you know, as far as my understanding, get full custody of Andrea and also maybe get some kind of alimony or something so that her and Andrea could live comfortably. So things were piling up in terms of hugely suspicious activity as well as a motive. It seems to be pretty apparent that Peter and Christine's marriage was not on solid grounds, as well as the fact that Peter was having an affair and had been plotting to have Christine taken out a numerous amount of times previous to all this going down. With that being said, Peter would be apprehended from his home on August 17th, 1973 on the grounds of non-capital murder. Supposedly, when police arrived at the home, Peter greeted them by saying, quote, I've been expecting you. Which, like, come on, dude. Come on. That's the douchiest thing you could say. And not only that, but why? 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 Why are people so stupid? It's like a psychopath thing to say. It's like, yeah. I knew you were coming for me because I knew I killed somebody. Yeah, it's like, come on. Why? why? It drives me insane. And to be honest, I think... The reason why police were able to go ahead and apprehend him was because they had basically this whole story of, you know, witness accounts, how he was behaving, this, that, and the other. I think that's what kind of granted them access to make this arrest of sorts. But, you know, they... <sighs> Him saying, I've been expecting you when police show up. Like, come on. You're just basically putting the nails in your own coffin at this rate. He sure is. Peter would be taken into custody, further questioned. However, was granted a $75,000 bail five days after being put into custody. Some may wonder why the prosecution didn't argue this bail grant. In which, when watching the Unjust Crimes podcast YouTube video, it was explained that this was actually ideal to have Peter back out in the community because he would have been able to be further monitored by investigators. Not only that, but Homeboy had a tendency to run his mouth a lot prior to him being arrested, which the prosecution was banking on this to continue because they thought he would eventually slip up and confess. You know, his phone's tapped. Chubb is probably still wired at this point. He's going to say something even more stupid and potentially get that confession, right? As opposed to him being locked up 
and maybe not talking as much. Do, do you get, do you get that? Yeah. All the guy does is talk. So he's going to say something eventually. It's going to incriminate himself. Exactly. So jumping forward to his preliminary hearing, which took place on January 28th, 1974, Peter would be bamboozled to see his so-called best friend, Chaba, enter the courtroom as a surprise witness for the prosecution. Now, that is a courtroom moment that I wish I could see. Like, just the look on his smug face. I love your choice of word of bamboozled. Bamboozled. You know what? It's a word that I feel we don't hear as much anymore. And I thought, you know what? This is applicable. (laughs) Anyway, so Chaba recanted what he told police prior to the trial, never changing his story once, apparently. So although Chaba was claimed to be uncredible by Pierre's defense team, Chaba's story seemed solid to the judge who confirmed that he would be a credible witness and would move forward with the trial. This was huge because Chaba was Peter's best friend and the one that Peter dished out all of his previous murder plans and schemes to. So this was a win. Peter's trial began on September 23rd, 1974, where it was decided that it would be moved from Brampton, Ontario to London, Ontario in order to allow for Peter to have a, quote, fair trial. I'm sorry. What? Yeah, so sometimes in like high profile cases, they will move the location of the trial so that they can pick from a different kind of jury population. So moving from, you know, one city to another is actually kind of a kind of, I don't want to say a good thing, but it allows for more fairness to happen because some of the jury members might not have heard about the case as of yet or might not know the family or friends of anyone involved with the case. So it allows for them to kind of have a non-biased opinion out of the jury members that are selected. Yeah, sure. I didn't think that probably because it's in Brampton or wherever that there would be a lot more people would know. True. Yeah, and for geographical reference, Brampton and Mississauga are basically what I think Brampton is north of Mississauga. I don't really know. It's hard. It's it's the GTA. It's basically one big blob of a city. Let's be real here. Not to be offensive, but it's a blob. It's just one big city put into one area. Unless you live there, then people are going to be offended and be like, oh, it's not. Exactly. If you say, oh, you're from the GTA, like whereabouts? And you're, they say, oh, I'm from Scarborough. And you're like, oh, so you're in Toronto. They're like, no, it's Scarborough. It's totally different. In my small mind, I'm like, it's basically the same for someone that doesn't live there. But okay. <laughs> It's all city to me. It is what it is. Exactly. So throughout the entire trial, Peter stood by his innocence regarding being anywhere responsible for plotting Christine's murder. Peter wouldn't go on to testify at his own trial. However, there was so much that happened that I think him testifying would have dragged on the process longer. Speaking of which, during the witness testimonies portion of the trial, a huge bombshell in the case came to light. For this bomb, I'm going to directly quote a Toronto Star article by Valerie Hotch. Quote, another prosecution witness who was hooded in court to protect his identity, but later was revealed to be jailhouse snitch Gila Virage, testified that Peter had hired a Hungarian hitman called The Duck. The latter was identified as Emir Olignayek, but he later died before police could extradite him from Hungary, end quote. So supposedly this Emir individual, aka The Duck, was the one who Peter had hired to kill Christine. And when the investigation started, it's been alleged that a left Canada to go back to Hungary, however, was eventually apprehended by police. I will also mention, for those wondering, Gila was once referred in the media as being called Mr. X. And the reason he was brought in was because he supposedly had reached out to investigators with the information I just mentioned from the Toronto Star article. So this is a bombshell. This is 
huge. That's big news. Yeah, this was massive. As mentioned, though, unfortunately, Amir would die before being extradited back to Canada for the trial. So we couldn't get a hold of Mr. Duck. Needless to say, Peter's defense tried to state that Christine had hired a hit person on Peter before she was murdered and that perhaps that transaction soured, shifting the blame to the hit person as opposed to Peter. It does appear that there was a witness, aka the supposed hit person hired by Christine, that did testify to confirm this allegation based on what I heard while watching the Unjust Crimes podcast YouTube video, which, mind blown, this is just insane. It basically creates this huge media frenzy because we have all of this scandalous information coming out, like bursting at the seams. It's basically a murder plot within a murder plot. And there's tons of money involved. There's affairs. There's just scandals everywhere. This is a lot. And everyone in, I'm going to say the country, the world, I don't know how big this really got at the time, but everyone was losing their ever-loving minds because it kind of unearthed this underground Hungarian crime scene that was going on because I guess all of these, uh, you know, Amir and Gila were from Hungary and that's how maybe Peter knew them. And it's just insane. Christy, what are your thoughts on this? A Hungarian crime mob comes to Toronto to murder people. Yeah, a basically. New, new thing. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just wild. It's, oh, I could, I'm just losing my mind over this. So finally, it was down to the jury to determine Peter's fate, which they came back after less than a few days time and found him guilty. Peter would be sentenced to life in prison. Now, some may be wondering about Marina. And yes, she was involved during the trial. From what I gathered, Marina had allegedly tricked Peter previously. And I say tricked with kind of like a, I don't really know if it's tricking or maybe... I, I don't know. I'll explain why. Uh, but she had told Peter previous to Christine's death that she had been engaged to be married. However, that turned out to not be necessarily true. On top of that, eight days before Christine died, she had told Peter that she thought she was pregnant. I don't know if she actually was pregnant or not, but that's the word on the internet. So we have to take that with a grain of salt. But yeah, just a lot going on there. Marina had moved into Peter and Christine's home after Christine had died and reportedly drove Christine's Mercedes-Benz shortly after moving in. She also accompanied Peter every day to trial and was seen walking the dog, Beezlebub, every afternoon. Homegirl just moves in and takes over her fucking life. Not great, to say the least. So Marina was also asked to read all of the love letters that she and Peter had exchanged in court as they were confiscated by authorities prior to. When Peter was found guilty, it's been documented that Marina supposedly walked out of the courtroom, took Beezlebub, and went back to Austria. So she she literally pulled uh, Jennifer Coolidge from Legally Blonde and said, I'm taking the dog, dumbass, and left. She must really like that dog, apparently. Yeah, she's like, you know what? I liked Beezlebub way more than Peter anyways. I was just in this relationship for the dog. Which, you know what? That's fair. That's a thousand percent fair. I get it. That's fair for you. You have a dog obsession. Yeah, so Peter reportedly wrote to Marina every day while in jail. However, eventually she would just move on and stop replying to him. But Peter seemingly could not move on, at least from his life of crime. So if you think the death of Christine was it... 
you'd be wrong. There is so much more. And this is why this is probably one of the longest cases I've ever wrote so far for the show. After serving about 10 years for his life sentence for the murder of Christine, Peter was granted day parole and was moved to a Peterborough halfway house. For geographical reference, Peterborough is approximately an hour to two and a half hours east from where the Demeters once lived in Mississauga. While Peter was at the halfway house, he was able to snag himself a girlfriend, a 29-year-old woman by the name of Lisa. Even though he was able to find love in a new partner, Peter was still not fully in control of his life. His cousin, Stephen, still had custody of Andrea and reportedly had some control over Peter's financial affairs. Because of this lack of full control, Peter grew a hate on for his cousin and reportedly decided to plot his cousin's own death. Well, just can't get enough killing people, apparently. Planning to kill people either. Like, he's not even... He can't, he doesn't even do anything. He just makes all these plans and pays people to do his dirty work. Like, I'm not saying either or is good, but damn, he just can't do anything himself at all. And we'll get to it because we're not done at all. So with the help of two former inmates, Peter allegedly formulated a plan to kidnap and kill Stephen's son, then 20-year-old Stuart. So it's not that he was trying to plan Stephen's death, but he decided to really give a blow to Stephen's life by trying to kill his own, like, Stephen's son, a.k.a. Peter's own nephew, which that's just fucked up. Yeah, that's all kinds of wrong. Like, what the fuck? Exactly. So Peter was also trying to sell the former family home in Mississauga. However, because it was the scene of one of the city's most infamous murder cases, it obviously wasn't selling fast. In August of 1983, Peter had paid one of the previous mentioned inmates, Tony Preston, $8,000 to burn down his home in Mississauga. This would essentially allow for Peter to claim the insurance policy on the home and potentially get out of trying to have to sell the place or, you know, keeping it on the market. Not only that, but then Peter could get more money and do with whatever he chooses to do with it. Mm, Very interesting. Yes. So the plan for Tony was to burn the home down and then eventually kidnap and murder Stuart. However, Tony got caught and proceeded to turn his back on Peter, telling officials everything that was going on. Peter would then be charged with conspiracy to kidnap and conspiracy to murder in relation to his own nephew. He was also supposedly charged with arson charges. However, they would be later stayed, according to the previously mentioned Toronto Star article that I that I mentioned like way earlier on. The trial for the conspiracy to kidnap and murder charges would end in 1985 when Peter would be convicted and charged with another life sentence to run concurrently with his previous one. This trial was also similar to that of Christine's in the sense that a lot went down, in which I'm going to summarize this by using a direct quote from a Montreal Gazette article. Quote, in the 20 months from his arrest to yesterday's verdict, Demeter had attempted suicide, won and then lost a change of venue, fired two lawyers and conducted his own rambling defense before a mistrial was declared over suspicions that his third lawyer was too drunk to perform. End quote. All of this happened for the second time that he went Yes. What the fuck? (laughs) Yeah, when I said this case was wild, I was not lying whatsoever. This case is fucking crazy. Uh, During the sentencing hearing, District Court Judge G. Bork-Smith reportedly was quoted saying regarding to Peter, quote, The contract killing of a close relative has a shuddering similarity to the accused prior crime. The judge also called Peter a, quote, very dangerous man, very intelligent, 
but diabolical. And if you think the crime train has left the building, you'd be wrong. It's still chugging, because between the end of July to mid-August of 1985, Peter was sitting in jail trying to come up with another murder scheme, because this man does not have a hobby. He supposedly refused to pay his lawyer's $46,000 bill, so the lawyer froze some of Peter's assets. This obviously pissed off Peter, who we know doesn't like not having control and doesn't really do well when he's angry. Peter, who was reportedly still entangled with Lisa, had arranged for her and one of his former cellmates, Peter Winstanley, to kidnap Peter's lawyer's kids. This kidnapping plan also included a $400,000 ransom, even though the plan was to murder the lawyer's kids kids, even if the money was given. The former cellmate, Peter W., did the right thing, though, and went to police, who then went to Lisa. Lisa had agreed to testify against Peter in a deal that she would not be charged with anything afterwards. Once again, everyone that Peter tried to include in his schemes seemingly turned their backs on him. Well, that's just saddening for him. I don't think you can hear it, but I'm playing the world's smallest violin in relation to Peter, Because, like, this is why you just don't get people... Well, okay, no. I'm not gonna go there. I was gonna say, this is why you don't get people involved. But this is why you just don't do this shit. Like, you could avoid all of this by not doing any of this. Just... If he would have just divorced Christine and moved on with Marina, we wouldn't even be having this conversation today. But no, here we are, talking about this dumbass criminal who doesn't seem to get it at all. Anyways, though, he would... (laughs) I, we need to move on because this this man just makes me so angry. That's um, real like me 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 little violin. <laughs> <laughs> that is one thing we will have to add to our future soundboard whenever we get it. <laughs> Anyways, Peter would be charged and convicted again with conspiracy to kidnap and murder, and would poorly was given another two life sentences by 1988. So to recap, Peter is serving a life sentence for Christine, another one for planning to kidnap his own nephew, and then two more for trying to kidnap his lawyer's kids. So a total of four life sentences. This guy's batshit crazy. He's just not well and not a smart criminal, which is kind of a good thing because I would be terrified knowing this man is still roaming the streets of Canada. In Mississauga or whatever. Yeah, glad he's not. Glad he is not. So from what I gathered in my research, Peter still attests his innocence in plotting Christine's death, and no one has actually been convicted of physically murdering Christine. In 2006, it was requested by a judge that then 73-year-old Peter provide a DNA sample to the Canadian DNA Bank. However, he... Peter kind of put up a stink about it. At this point in time, Peter was being housed in a medium security jail in Bath, Ontario, which is near Kingston, Ontario, and approximately three hours away from Mississauga. In a direct quote from a CBC News article, quote, it's just continuous harassment by Peel Regional Police of 33 years since they have absolutely zero use for it. I'm not going anywhere. I'm slated to die here, being that of the jail in Bath. Or if I get sick, I'm slated to die in the dungeon of the maximum security Security Kingston Penitentiary, where they have a so-called palliative care ward, end quote. And yes, I gave a sassy tone because that's how I imagine Peter probably would have said it was in a sassy, I'm not going to do it because I'm the victim here. Sorry, buddy. You got no legs to stand on there. Literally, like, oh, because your feet are in your mouth and you just don't learn to shut up. Oh, this man drives me insane. But I think it goes without saying he isn't very cooperative in his old age. Uh, It's also been documented that in a CBC interview from 2006 that Peter had 
came to terms at that point that he was going to be in prison for the rest of his life, which Homeboy still tried to shoot his shot in March of 2019 when he applied for parole. However, it was quickly denied. I wonder if they said no because of what happened the first time he got parole in Peterborough, which is kind of me being sarcastic because hell yes, it was. He tried to he set up a murder plot for his own nephew the last time he got parole. Do you not think he would do it again? <laughs> like... Or not even his family, but anybody he would just try to anybody. set up a murder plot. Honestly, someone could mess up his Tim Hortons drive through order and he probably would create a murder plot for them too because he just doesn't know how to cope with anger. He doesn't know, he, he doesn't have the capacity or the emotional intelligence to deal with his anger and that is a problem. And obviously he hasn't been working on it since being incarcerated, which is unfortunate. But hey dude, we're all responsible for our mental well-being. You gotta take responsibility for it. But alas, there is a quote by one of the panel members, which was published in a Toronto Star article, which reads, quote, your history of counseling others to seek revenge for you makes you more of a risk of recidivism than your age and your physical ability to harm others would suggest, end quote. That same article written by Michelle Mandel documented that Peter has been diagnosed with an undetermined personality disorder possessing narcissistic and antisocial features. His physical health has also been documented documented publicly, which noted that he has suffered from a stroke, a heart attack, a cancer diagnosis that has been treated thrice by chemotherapy. Peter is currently still kicking it and is 88 years old, probably still protesting his innocence, but hopefully unable to plan any more schemes. And for those wondering about Andrea, from what I heard and read in my research, she supposedly didn't know what happened until she was approximately nine years old. Apparently, a classmate had shown her a book about her mother's murder, which had a photo of her dad in it as well so she kind of put two and two together and i just want to say that must have been earth shattering for her to figure that out at nine years old because at that point she thought that her uncle steve and his family was her family that's really sad and i know that yes like she's nine years old but at that point kids are developing they understand yeah you think you want to like sit them down have a talk eventually because they're going to be in school kids talk one can show them a book it's yeah. going to come out eventually. You need, kind of want to prepare them for that if it's out there in the public, for sure. Yeah, and apparently Andrea would go on a weekly basis after this kind of discovery to go visit her quote-unquote real dad. And I say that in quotes because he, as far as from what I gathered, he didn't really act like a real dad. Um, and that's just my opinion, but based on what I read. But um, she would go every week to see him. And from what I read, these interactions probably did did more damage than good for her. I mean, I'm speaking loosely here in the sense of, you know, she quoted, she was quoted in a 2004 Toronto Sun article saying, quote, every Tuesday I had to visit with the scariest man on the face of the earth. Uh, eventually she just cut contact with him. She said, you know what, this, she probably said, you know what, this is no longer giving me anything because he was reportedly super cold and just not a dad. He just wasn't, a dad to her he was so caught up in his schemes and his you know protecting his quote-unquote innocence that he probably just forgot that oh yeah i have a child that's roaming this earth and that i should support and love which is heartbreaking no kudos to her for going but to know that he wasn't even really in your life and then he possibly did murder your mother yeah but i wouldn't even want to go i'd be like no not, there's yeah. nothing there for me yeah, just because you're blood relatives of someone doesn't necessarily mean that they're always going to be the most healthiest relationship to have, right? 
toxic family members exist every day in every kind of family. So kudos mm-hmm. for her for setting those boundaries. Um, so to kind of summarize this case... <laughs> to try and summarize this case. Peter, in my books, has earned a top shelf position on our very own shitty person shelf for some pretty obvious reasons. Yes, he did experience a traumatic event as a child, and yes, that may have impacted his mental well-being, which may have influenced his actions. We really can't confirm or deny that. However, one's mental health is their responsibility, just like my mental health is my responsibility, and Christy's mental health is her responsibility. And Peter, by all accounts that I read, did not take the reins in owning his responsibility. On top of that, he became obsessed with things that create a constant chase, money and people, and ultimately seemed to become greedy. He let these obsessions consume his life, which ultimately consumed others. Hopefully all those affected by the case, such as Andrea, are living a more peaceful life knowing that unless hell freezes over, Peter will remain behind bars. And that is the case or multiple cases of Peter Demeter. What are your thoughts, Christy? I know that was a roller coaster. Yes, that was a little bit of a whirlwind of different things because he was having multiple plots going on, trying to kill multiple people, not at his hand, but at other people's hands. So there's a lot going on and I'm glad he's in jail and he stays there. Yes, me too. And as mentioned, there are a lot of details on this case. So I would highly recommend watching the YouTube video by Unjust Crimes called, quote, one of Canada's most dangerous criminals, the crazy case of Peter Demeter. For all the details, which some I probably missed or didn't include because, you know, time. (laughs) Uh, But I got a lot of today's information from this resource and I thoroughly enjoyed watching that. So I would recommend that YouTube video, once again, by Unjust Crimes. And just for the sake of time and because I am hungry now and need food, (laughs) I'm going to let Chrissy tell her piece and I will include today's resources in the show notes. If for some reason Anchor does a weird thing like it did last week and won't let me put it in the show notes i'll make another picture of the resources but christy without further ado can you say your lovely segment of where people can find our show how they can support our show and how they can share their weird tales with us for the show you can find us on many platforms um apple Podcasts. on there you can do reviews you can give stars some feedback please go on, please give us a rating. That just kind of helps in a non-monetized way to help out different podcasts of getting their content out there. So feel free to go on there and do that. We're also on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, Stitcher, and many more. Basically, anywhere you listen to podcasts, you'll probably find us. You can also support us on our social media pages. We are on TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Again, just searching Weird Distractions Podcast or Weird Distract I when on Twitter. Next, for a monetized option, if you wanted to go over and join our Patreon, we are always putting up our new content up there uh, monthly. Consider joining. We have two tiers of our patrons. We have both the bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes footage for some certain things. You get stickers, you get cards, you get a couple extras here and there, depending on what you pick. I want to give a huge shout out, as always, to our patrons. We love you. And if you want to be a part of this little weird family that we got going on over on Patreon, I think right now is kind of the best time to join our Patreon because we have decided that we are going to skip payments from now. So December of 2021 to February of 2022, because, you know, December and January are very expensive months of the year. And 
it doesn't feel well, it doesn't feel right for Chris and I to be charging people for extra content when, you know, it's already financially straining. Not only that, but we all we just really enjoy creating all the content that's on our Patreon page. So if you've been kind of on the fence, you're like, ah, I want to join, but I don't know what tier I want to join or, uh, you know, money's tight, but I would like to, um, you know, hear a bonus episode or two from the Weird Distractions gals. Right now is a good time to join and you can find us over once again at patreon.com slash weird distractions podcast yeah so check that out and definitely join the next two months just to get a little sneak peek of what you might get other than patreon for our monetized options we also have other things you can kind of support us with so we have buy me a coffee you can go on there give a little zhuzh of something to us also on Redbubble and probably a great time right now kind of closer to Christmas maybe some deals on there or discounts to give some merch for Christmas or just for yourself you can find probably any of our logos on basically anything that you want to wear or right on or drink out of it's all options on there yeah and i think we have about like five designs on there so we've got skeptical Susie on there we've got i'm gonna speculate wildly on there we've got need a distraction on there we've got all kinds of stuff on there so definitely check it out yes and lastly we always want to hear from you guys so we're always looking for our listener distractions um content for an episode we have the one episode out. It was on, on June 13th, I believe. And we're just always looking to give you guys another one. We wanted to be big and juicy. So we're always wanting to get a little more stuff to come in for us to share. It doesn't even have to be a story that you met a serial killer or encountered one or anything like that. It could be you had a dream, you mm-hmm. had a thought, like anything. Just if it's something weird, because we are all about the weird, just send it in and we want to share it with people. Exactly. And I think today's hot advice tip is don't be a dumbass. Keep your foot out of your mouth and always take the dog if you can. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That's that's me trying to think of something on the spot. But regardless, if you need a distraction. We always got you at Weird Distractions Podcast at Outlook.com, by the way. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, that's how you can email us your stories. But (laughs) in the end. (laughs) And then the end. Bye. Bye. Bye.